The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. month and looking at our practice again we're always looking at this thing we call practice (laughs) that word practice is probably something that gets repeated more than any other word at the center and it actually it's a confusing it can be a confusing word because when you hear the word practice it implies a kind of doing but actually Our habit is always to be doing things. Struggling, resisting, fixing, comparing, criticizing. So the reason that we use the word practice is we're practicing another way of being with our experience. Instead of in this particular mode of fixing or controlling or judging, there's a different way, there's another way. I want to take this month to reflect on that and I'll set aside more time tonight to hear back from you folks what you're learning in your practice or questions you might have. Last week I asked the question, you know, why should someone like each of us, why should we bother to train the mind? Why not just go about our day, you know, as we have been or people do? Why would a human being want to practice or want to train the mind? And I mentioned last week, uh, if you weren't here, that what we discover, what we bump into is that there is stress in life, you know. The mind does get tight. Things are difficult and heavy. And we bump into this realization, this experience that from time to time. This is not an easy experience to bump into, but if we're lucky enough, we bump into the experience that the cause of the stress or the dis-ease is right here. It's happening here. And it's, I know that sounds obvious, but when we lose our job or when somebody says something that upsets us, our mind has a funny way of creating the cause out there. But actually the pain, the weight, the tension, the stress is here. There's something happening right here. This is the problem right here. But we have this amazing capacity to objectify our lives. You know, it's almost like I tell myself a story about Mark Nunberg, who's got this kind of life going on. Like, almost like a movie, you know, we have movies that are tragedies or this or that. And then we tell ourselves a story about our life, how it is now for us. And if it's a tragedy we're saying, telling ourselves, then it feels heavy. Or a great longing, you know, the story of great longing. And then it feels tight because we feel like we need something. 
But actually, you know, when we simplify and become more direct, more honest, when we're upset, when the mind is tight, when there's stress, that that is an activity right in the moment. We, in fact, we shouldn't make it a noun. We shouldn't say, "Oh, there is stress." You know, there's stressing, <laughs> there's tightening, there's contracting. Because in the minute where the mind abandons or isn't participating, isn't doing that, there isn't stress, there isn't weight. The mind actually has to be engaged in an activity in order for it to feel upset or tight or heavy. Now this is something to experiment with in these weeks and to bring up in the discussion at the end of the evening. You know, what is your experience? Do you have a different experience than that? So, you know, we could probably 100% agree that there is dukkha, the word for stress. There is tension, there is contraction, there is fear and greed. These are experiences we know well. And then at least probably most of us would agree that we could stay open to the possibility that the experience of stress isn't because somebody said something to me. But when I heard that, my mind or heart started to do something that was, that is that experience of stress, or that is that experience of fear, or that is that experience of craving. So the craving, the fearing, the struggling, the denying, distracting, these are activities that are happening here. Now, it's not wrong to say that this activity here of stressing is related to something I heard or something I experienced out in the world. But a lot of that we have very little control over. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do things in the world and tell people what's going on and ask people to not do that or to ask people to do what we need to have done. But first and foremost, we have to, we should be interested in what's going on right here in the mind and heart. Like, what is this activity? Because if it's here, then the question is, well, how do we go beyond that? The Buddha has this uh, interesting discourse. I don't think I mentioned it last week. Forgive me if I did, but there's a particular discourse called one, one translation is um, one fortunate attachment, and another tra translation is a better way to live alone. And it's about a, a monk that was living in a very secluded way, and the younger monks were very impressed by this older monk. And uh, so they told the Buddha about him, and the Buddha told the younger monks, well, go invite that older monk who lives alone to come see me. And he did. And, the Buddha praised him for living a quiet, secluded life, and then said, let me tell you of an even better way to live a quiet, secluded life. And he said, don't go back over what has passed, nor yearn for what is yet to be. What has passed has been abandoned, and the future is not yet here. The state arising here and now, see it with insight as it is. So in this practice, there's this real devotion to the present moment. 
This is how we go beyond the experience of stress. Any kind of dis-ease, dissatisfaction, uneasiness, heaviness, any kind of burden in the mind and heart, if we really start to get, start to realize that it's always about here, this, here, then we know where to look for the way beyond. Because, you know, like I said last week, normally we think it's out there, so then that's where we pour our energy. We want to look out into the world and see what we can fix. How can I fix the world? How can I change my partner? How can I... Even we objectify ourselves. You know, we put... The mind is very nimble in this way. It's very diluted. I can even throw myself, in a sense, out there and then objectify myself as, how can I fix Mark? As if somehow I'm out here, you know? Do you notice that? It's like we put our life out there. We go, well, what, you know, what can I do about it? And this is why it's a, it's a, powerful, a powerful paradigm shift, because it's always about this. What do you mean, this? Well, I mean this, literally this. It's like, right now, can you distinguish, you know, what you refer to as yourself, what you refer to as your experience, what you refer to as the world, what you refer to as your thoughts? Can you actually distinguish those things? It's just this, isn't it? Whoever you think you are is this. <laughs> you know, whatever you think the world is, it's this. You know, whatever you think the person sitting next to you is, that's also this. It's also, it has to be here and now. Can there be anything besides this? Try to conceive of something that's not this. You see the paradigm or the paradox we're in? Like I, I think, well, there's Afghanistan, isn't there? You know, there's a war in Afghanistan. But that's just this. Any thoughts or feelings we have about Afghanistan, the concept, is just here now as this. And you might say, no, no, there's really a country. I was there, you know. <laughs> but that just exists as this thought here now, this thought about 20 years ago when I was traveling in Afghanistan or whatever, you know, your experience might be. So much of the practice we do is about facilitating this shift in perspective from an objectiviz uh, objectivization of reality, of our lives, of everything, to this sort of implosion into the here and now. It's a dropping away. You know, it's like with our thoughts, with our language, we can create this dimensional world. There's you, there's what I like, there's what I don't like, there's the past, there's the future, there's the now. It has all these different qualities, this world of ours. It gets really complicated. The more we have, you know, the past and the future, what's good, what's bad, you, me, the other person, the more we have things to react to, to be for or against, to be afraid of, to want. It just complicates. It makes everything heavy and confusing. So one of the first things you notice when you start listening and then practicing is 
it's all about keeping things really simple. It's not making things simple. It's in a way remembering how simple things actually are. This is really simple. It's just this. Our whole life, everything, is just this. There's nothing outside of this. And as our minds complain about that statement or react to that statement, that's also this. It's also here, now, something that's being known. So if we want to go beyond the experience of suffering, the experience of stress, or any weight, any burden in life, if we don't begin, if we don't practice or turn the mind-heart to this, we'll always fail. All we're going to do is create more frustration. So if you're having difficulties in a relationship or difficulties at work, or difficulties with your body, difficulties with aging, difficulties with children, difficulties with your local meditation center, whatever it is, if all we do is uh, deal with what is out there, then all we're getting is, if, if we're lucky, we're getting some temporary relief from whatever yucky feeling we have. But if we include and emphasize how it is right now, here and now, if we emphasize this and really use this as the barometer, like how this is, then we might actually get somewhere in our life. So I want to talk about that a little bit. One of the things that we start to recognize when we pay attention to this, the present moment, but even turn it into the present moment kind of like the present moment as opposed to what? So this is actually a better word. I mean, I use the present moment a lot. A lot of people do. The Buddha didn't use the present moment. He didn't use that language very much at all, the present moment. In fact, somewhere in one of his talks, he said, You've got to let go of your attachment to the past, your attachment to the future. I mean, we kind of get that. And he said, you have to let go of your attachment to the present moment. Even that is a trap, thinking, you know, there is this. So he called it, I mean, you, you get in trouble, whatever you call it. He called it dharma or dhamma, the way it is, you know. So it's like this, the way it is. That's all there is, the way it is. And the way it is, you know, it's only the way it is in this moment. And then you got to say it again, the way it is now, you know, because now it's not, because that's already gone. So it's a very alive thing, this is, right? Very alive. So that's one of the first things. Once we start to get this and get interested, and now we're practicing, right? Because we're actually like, oh, maybe there is this thing called this, or dharma, or the way it is, you know? And maybe it's relevant. Maybe it's relevant enough to direct my attention to this, to how it is. And one of the things we get is how fluid it is, how dynamic it is. It never is static. I mean, that is its sort of ultimate characteristic, not being static, fluid. And 
that fluidity, that process of ever-changing, it's lawful. So this is something to kind of notice about this. It's like, in a one hand, it's very ephemeral because it's so fluid, it's always changing. But how it changes makes sense in a way. It's like this, the way it is right now, each of us is having this as an experience. And the way it is, isn't a mistake. It didn't like just drop from somewhere. Oh, now it's like this. And then the next experience of this is somehow completely unrelated. This is why it's so confusing for us. Because of this continuity, this feels, we, we uh, take this to be something that it's not. Because of that continuity, because of that lawfulness. It feels much more substantial and real. But we want to see its fluidity and the lawfulness of this fluidity. Because we learn something about it. Now, the thing about this, it's very easy to slip into two sides, two kind of views that don't really work so well. One view is to feel like this is completely out of our control. It's like a deterministic unfolding. And basically, we're screwed. Because it's just going to be what it's going to be. And uh, why would I want to pay attention to that sort of deterministic unfolding when I have nothing to say about it? You know? And even if I do say something about it, that was conditioned, that was determined too. And there's, there can be kind of a nihilistic, well, forget it. So it is that way. Okay, forget it. Why pay attention? And the other way, which we're more likely to fall into, is to uh, want to control it. So, okay, it's changing. Well, I'll tweak it. I'll make it go this way. I'll make it go that way. You know, if I just think positively, my world will unfold a particular way. Like the engine that could. You know, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And so we're basically in, you know, most of us are more sophisticated, right? So the way we try to impose our will on this unfolding is more subtle. It's like we, we work with intention. You know, I want this person to like me or I, you know, as opposed to like, uh, you know, forcing reality a particular direction. Because we've learned that doesn't work. But we might, it's like almost like magical thinking. Like if I do this, if I think this, then something good will happen. And if I don't do it, something bad will happen. Some of you know the radio program, This American Life. It's on the weekends um, out of Chicago Public Radio. And they, they do some interesting shows. And last, uh, yesterday, I guess, I was listening on my way back from teaching in Northfield, Minnesota. And they were, um, somebody was talking who had, uh, uh, had they were he was at like a Bible camp can't remember the exact story as a little kid and they were doing the Ouija board and doing all this sort of spooky stuff that wasn't okay given the sort of uh, context of the Bible camp or the church camp that they were at and uh, he got kind of spooked 
you know, and started at night, that night dreamt that the devil was around. And, uh, and the next day, you know, just sort of young male bravado said kind of, uh, oh, he saw a storm coming in. And his mind immediately thought, oh, that's probably the devil. And then just some of the sort of male bravado said, uh, okay, you know, show me your stuff, that kind of thing. You know, and it was just, you know, normal kind of church camp. And uh, and this is, I don't know how common this energy is, but I know this energy, I remember this energy sort of like, uh, you know, kind of just sort of challenging, provoking energy. And then uh, lo and behold, not long after, like that storm, so like 45 minutes or whatever later, uh, he was with his buddy in, in the tent or cabin, whatever, and uh, he was waiting for his buddy to go to lunch, and uh, his buddy said, no, you just go ahead, I'll catch up, save me a spot, I'll catch up. And uh, sure enough, the storm came, lightning hit, and killed several people, including his friend. Um, and so he, because of this sort of 10 seconds of bravado, and his own conditioning, being you know raised as a Christian, with a very clear idea there is this thing called the devil and you don't mess with the devil and you don't play with the Ouija boards and you don't do anything like that because you can invite in things that aren't so good. I mean, this is not an uncommon view. I, I once gave a talk at Children's Hospital. They have something called Grand, Grand Rounds where they invite different speakers in. And This is a long time ago in the early 90s and just asked me to talk about meditation in children, because I had done some meditation with children um, over the years. And one of the doctors asked after I'd finished my presentation about uh, this perspective, like if you open, if you kind of clear out your mind, anything could come in, like the devil can come in. So this is a, a common belief. But the point I wanted to make about uh, this person is, you know, he had this thought that he caused, that somehow, I mean, he knew better on one level, but on another level, he felt like he had sort of made this happen. So this is just an example of how convoluted and uh, how deep these patterns of thinking were in control, that we can make something happen. Different kinds of magical thinking on the one hand, and then the other hand, thinking there's nothing we can do. It's hopeless, nihilistic view. And the Buddha clearly, you know, intentionally rejected both of those points of view. Like, they're not helpful. A nihilistic point of view is not helpful because it leads to what? Giving up. The sort of uh, view that willful or even unconscious actions make things happen or that somehow we control our destiny is also wrong that somehow we can make something happen is also missing the point. So he taught a, you know, the middle way, sort of neither of those two ways. And this middle way is really about being in the present moment, being with this, and instead of slipping into nihilism where you don't think it matters, you know, so we lose the interest. So, we're getting nihilistic as soon as we stop being interested in the present moment, right? That, that doesn't matter. And when you struggle in any way with the present moment, you've also lost it. Any kind of struggling, right? So what is a you know what is a human being to do then? 
Well, here in the present moment, not struggling, not dis- getting distracted, we practice changing our way of understanding, our way of relating to the present moment. So there we are in the present moment, you know, with the impulse to get distracted because we don't think it's important or there doesn't seem to be anything to do. Now, have you had that thought watching your breath? I mean, maybe a million times, feeling like, well, this is stupid. <laughs> Breathing up, this is still stupid. <laughs> you know? I mean, we'd be embarrassed. Some of us who've been practicing for a while, you know, it's embarrassing to tell people how many minutes, how many hours, how many cumulative days, maybe even years. I mean, I'm not that unique, but I think I'm getting, just in terms of formal retreat practice, like at least probably three years of my life now I've been on retreat, you know, not talking, just sitting and walking meditation for the days. And I don't think I'm that unusual for, you know, people who've been practicing, in my case, for 28 years, you know, and who are really serious about it. So we spend a lot of time sliding into thinking there's nothing to do, forget it, and trying to impose our will on the moment. But when we're neither do, not doing either of those, then we can say we're practicing. Because there we are with this, and we're learning to be, to relate to this in a way that doesn't cause pain. It's that simple. You know, the barometer is right here. How to relate to this without creating stress. So. If there is stress in the mind, if there is reactivity, you could fall into this side. Okay, I'm going to do something to make that suffering, that stress go away. But needing to do something to make stress go away is also stressful. So instead, there's a sense of being right here with this and relating to it, opening to it. And you know, the Buddha gives us the roadmaps. Well, get interested open to it, relax with it, see it clearly, and, you know, pay attention in particular to that it's changing, that it's conditional, meaning it's unfolding lawfully, and that it's impersonal. You know, so those are, that's the roadmap. Notice how impersonal the unfolding of the mind of the unfolding of sensations are in the body, or whatever it is you're noticing as this. Notice how it's changing. Notice how whenever you take it personally, it starts to be heavy. And when you're not taking it personally, it goes, that heaviness begins to dissipate. So what we're doing, see, if you try to be free, it's stressful. But to try to understand the present moment, this clearly is liberating. And this is really what we mean by practice. So, you know, for these uh, next couple weeks, you know, we're just looking at the, uh, the, the basic engine for our practice. It's really about this paradigm shift. So it's really appropriate at the beginning of your sit and then as many times during the day as you feel inspired, it's really appropriate just to stop and to remember this shift. Because otherwise what we're going to do is we're going to relate to our meditation practice in our life in our conventional way, which is either it doesn't matter, 
and so distraction seems like the best option. Or it does matter, and I'm going to do something to make it go the way I want it to go. So we're using our will to sort of make something happen. And the Buddha taught this middle way. You could call it the way of understanding or the way of wisdom, where all this sort of the only input that there is in the present moment is the shift, changes in understanding. And we're not actually making those shifts happen. The change of understanding comes from just being open, being, in a sense, close to this, the way it is. That's it. So the practice is so difficult because it's so simple. It's like very narrow. We, get, we only get really one thing to do, which is to open to this. That's it. Anything more than that is sort of not the practice. Now, there are a lot of skillful means that support opening to this. You know, like, for example, in the guided sit, I suggested, well, when you're breathing in, you could repeat the word knowing or connecting. And when you're breathing out, you could repeat the word releasing or letting go as a way of, you know, not falling into either of those sides of struggling or getting distracted or thinking it's not important. Or only, you know, in Buddhism, the devil, the bad guy, you know, the only thing that's really dangerous, harmful, is wrong view. Is in wrong view, you know, just to keep it simple, wrong view is one of these two approaches to life. It doesn't matter, or it matters and I'm gonna make something happen. Sort of taking the struggle of life personally and therefore feeling compelled to use our personal willful effort to make something happen, to strive, to struggle, that energy is stressful, reinforces the experience of suffering. Thinking there's nothing we can do, that we're doomed and helpless, distraction is the way, denial is the way, that's stressful. It's hard work to be distracted and to be in denial. And it doesn't, obviously it doesn't resolve any of the pain in life, any of the difficulty or confusion in life. So we just have to, most importantly, we just have to remember this shift or this, like, it's like a thread, not forgetting what practice actually is. And so we have words like opening to this, or opening to Dhamma, the way it is, or being mindful. That's what we mean by being mindful. It's not an act of control. I'm going to be mindful. It's like somehow we're controlling our experience by being mindful. And it's not about escaping or spacing out. You know, I'm going to be mindful and let go of the difficulties in my life. Being mindful really means, you know, we might use something like the breath or sensation in the body, but what it really means is this middle place where we're not getting distracted and we're not trying to control things. We're not trying to make anything happen. We're simply trying to understand this. And just like if you wanted to, you know, if I handed you an insect you've never seen before, you know, you could really still, you'd hold it in your hand or something, you know, and you get really quiet. 
You just want to understand it. You wouldn't need to think about it. You don't have anything to think about, you know, but just to see it. I didn't ask you to tell me what insect it is, to classify it. So you just get interested in it. And that's how we want to approach each moment of our life. And meditation practice is just a formal way to do that. Like, you know, it's hard to be interested in the breath. But, you know, the nice thing about breathing in and breathing out, we tend to be able to trust not to have to struggle with it. You know, other parts of our life, like when you're practicing at work, there's a lot more conditioning, a lot more habit energy about struggling. But probably less conditioning about thinking it's not relevant, you know, whatever you might be doing, or when you're driving home, you know, well. So every situation in our life, whether a formal sitting or our daily life, you know, we're going to gravitate toward one of these two extremes, towards neglect, disinterest, not thinking it's relevant, and wanting to control, wanting to fix, wanting to get something from it. But you just remember, okay, it's not that, it's not that. What is it again? Oh yeah, it's just about getting close. And I don't need to I don't need to do anything because it's already here. What I need to get close to, get interested in, wake up to, it's already here. It's actually incredibly easy. But we just have to overcome the strong conditioning, like the voice in the mind that says, This isn't relevant. You already know this. Why bother? Or, I don't like this, let's fix this. If I just fix it, it will be a lot easier to open to it. <laughs> you know, like we're sitting and we start to settle into the experience and this point of view arises. Well, let me fix the posture so I can do the middle path, you know? Let me deal with all this content in my mind, this distraction, so I can really do this. But actually, that distraction, that dis-ease in the body, that is this. We don't need to get rid of something to open to this. We just have to recognize, oh, this is this. It's already here. What we need to open to is already here. It doesn't, we don't need a different present moment than the one we have. It's the great thing, you know, it's like this practice takes no equipment. Because <laughs> the present moment is always here, right? It's all there is. All we need is to remember to be interested, not in order to control or make something happen, but it's an interest for its own sake. It's like uh, there's some, and you know, the more we do it, the more we directly experience this, that that intimacy, that willingness to be open and undefended, is inherently wholesome. It feels good, even when we're opening to something difficult or painful. It feels healing to be close, in the same way that struggling to make something that's painful other than what it is, or struggling to be, to not feel what's painful, both of those are unhealthy and stressful. Getting close, learning how to be open, that feels healing, and, uh, and really, the way, it feels like, oh, this is the way. And this is one of the insights that come up for people, where when they have this experience, this being in the middle with the present moment, one of the things that comes up strongly in the mind is, this is the way. The Buddha articulated that as the fourth noble truth, that when you have some real freedom being in the moment, 
without struggling, without denial, and you experience the freedom of not being in denial and not struggling with things as they are, then what gets really clear is the fourth noble truth, which is the way. Oh, this is the way to live. This is how to be a happy, loving, engaged human being. This is what, in a sense, I've been waiting for. This, you know, kind of this understanding, this approach. And then it's just a matter of cultivating this habit instead of this habit and this habit. That's all there is. It's just the reorientation of the mind. Once we understand this, then it's just a matter of weeding out, letting these old ha habits dry up due to neglect, non-use, you know, and developing the habit of being interested and being willing to open and be willing to feel what we feel and see what we see and know what the mind knows and not have to do anything about it. Because everything happens out of that intimacy, out of that knowing. Like how to respond, what's going to happen next. It comes out of the intimacy, not out of control. So I'll leave it here. We've got uh, 15 or 20 minutes. A little bit more time to hear from the community. Thoughts you have, questions, what you've been learning in your own life in this way. So what comes to mind? And please say your name if you have something to say. Hi, yeah. Jim. I had a question in regards to basically there's the two halves in wanting to control or being extremely passive. Can you speak on where the point of defining goals for the future and the motivation for training lies in that? Because it seems like to just be in the middle, then there would be no real growth in any which way. Like, where does motivation come into that? Mm -hmm. Well, like I mentioned, you know, that's a, what I just said is actually a good example of your comment. And this is a natural fear to come up because being in this middle place feels like we're letting life happen, right? All we're doing is putting the emphasis on understanding and basically trusting that choices will come out of that understanding and that these choices will be really good. But one of the things that comes out of that, as I mentioned, is this kind of uh, powerful aspiration. Oh my God, this is the way. You know, this is how to live. Well, that's a goal in a sense. You know, like oh, I want to do this. I want to live this way, not neglect, not struggling or controlling, but this way of opening and letting the choice, letting action, letting words flow out of that naturally, not Jim doing it, but letting the personality arise naturally out of that. It's a real letting go. Like, on the one hand, over here, we have the sense of being in the driver's seat of the personality, like I'm doing the personality, right? Here we're really letting go of that. So it, it, it's going to shock this system over here. This system's going to react to that. So we have to be prepared for this voice to say, wait a minute, I'm not ready to let go of the steering wheel. Who's gonna, you know, who's gonna make things happen for me? And so you have to experiment. Like, do things still happen for you when you take this approach? So start with your breath, you know, does the breath still happen? You know? And then just just like brush your teeth. Does the brushing of the teeth still happen effectively? And you'll just see that actually life works better. Driving home from work works better being mindful 
than trying to do it. Trying to be a good driver actually can get in the way of being a good driver. So instead of trying to be a good driver, what we can do is try to be really sensitive, really present, really awake, really interested in everything you know, in this, really connected to this. And you'll find that driving just happens. Good driving just happens. Thanks, Jim. <coughs> Other thoughts? Yeah, Jeremy. Um, I feel like at last week and this week, um, you were describing an experience that I had this morning. Um, I woke up with a sore throat. And I kind of went through this, um, you know, it really hurt. And I, and I kind of went through this um, movie, like you were talking about, this very intense tragedy that I woke up with this sore throat. And, um, and I reminded myself all the time, my throat is so sore. Oh, this is so horrible. You know, and I was kind of <clears throat> wallowing. And, uh, and then I, I kind of, um, I remembered what you had said last week about how when we personalize, something or we take something and then we add all of our feeling to it like that that's you know a, a problem um, so then then I, I kind of dropped the pity party but then I went the other direction where I was thinking well I'm going to do everything I can to stop this and you know so I was drinking warm water and you know breathing you know anyways I was trying to do everything right so it would go away and it didn't help at all and I, and I had to go to work, and I was frustrated and tired, and and then I just um, was, I just got interested in okay, I, I just want to like, this is what it feels like to have a sore throat, and and um, and like I was kind of imagining, this may seem silly, but I was just kind of imagining you know this virus you know doing whatever it's doing and. And this was the end result, and just the just the experience of kind of um, getting interested and then like releasing all of that baggage and that story about it, um, it made it very tolerable. Um, and I kind of forgot about it actually the rest of the day. So I um, and I thought it was really interesting that what you were talking about last week and this week it all kind of seems to be making sense. Yeah. Hopefully, I can keep applying it. <laughs> yeah, well, and sharing it like that for us hopefully will help you, but it, it's also really useful for us to hear the, you know, just how it works in ordinary situations. And so much of our suffering is this extra part. I mean, clearly, it's not pleasant to have a sore throat or to be getting sick, but most of the unpleasantness is our reaction to it or our attempt to deny it. And to be interested in it is how we abandon those two other approaches. So we have to create this middle way as an approach because it forces the abandonment of these two other strategies. So we make it a big deal. You know, we call it Dharma, the way it is. You know, we, we have a center about Dharma practice, right? This is a Dharma center, a meditation center. So we make a big deal of this middle way. But it's not actually a big deal that we make it a big deal because it helps us abandon these other things. And there's real relief in that. Some, somebody probably remembers, uh, Mark Twain has a great line about this, what you said, Jeremy, about, you know, I've experienced many difficult things in life, many tragedies, 
most of which never happened. <laughs> Is that how it goes? It's something like that, yeah. The idea that so much of the misery that we think we've experienced we didn't actually happen in the way we think it happened. It wasn't that way. It was just our imagining. Other thoughts people have? Yes. Jenner. Um, my daughter had an ascetomy a couple of weeks ago, and she had asked many people that she knew to say these healing mantras while she was in surgery. And we had a beautiful healing ceremony the night before. But somehow, how does that fit in with what you just said? Well, it, it really depends. I mean, it's person by person. And uh, I mean, first of all, I don't want to speculate about the power of prayer on the cells. And I'm open to that, actually, but you know, who knows? But apart from that, what really is interesting to us is, uh, is really what's the effect in people's minds, your daughter's mind, and then all the people who might have been praying for your daughter. And it really has to do with the intention in their mind. If they're over here, conceptualizing the cancer as uh, bad and cancer-free as good, then they're really in this dualistic world of good and bad. And even if their thoughts are like, I really want you to be cancer-free, on some level, they're, you know, that's a relatively wholesome thought, that it's really still grounded in fear because there's this scary thing out there called cancer, called things we don't like, and there's this really good, beautiful thing, which is being away from the things we don't like. But all of that, that whole conception of reality is tight. You know, good and evil is a tight overlay to be having all life long. But you don't need to have that in order to pray, you know. People could be sitting there thinking about your daughter and just feeling a lot of love for her and a lot of good wishes for her. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May all your cells be happy. You know, may they all work together harmoniously. I mean, so prayer doesn't need to be neurotic, doesn't need to turn things into good and bad. Often it does. So when you do a prayer circle or when you are sending out good wishes or prayers for somebody who's struggling, make sure not to fall into the good and bad world or the world that it doesn't matter, you know? You really want to just connect with something that's true, like this feeling. This is a human being, you know, as you bring them to mind, you know, I'm imagining this human being, just like me. She has a body and a mind, just like this body and mind. She has a this, just like I have a this, right? I care about her, because I know it's not easy having a this, right? It's not easy having a body-mind present moment experience. So we start there, and then we, then just like we care for our own this, it's easy to kind of care for that person. And then it's a really natural present moment happening of our heart welling up this kind of energy. We feel directly in the present moment, and then we, in a sense, in our minds, in the present moment, we feel that energy and we intention it to that person. Because we know body and minds are like this, you know, and we care about it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah all the mantras work just like you said, may you be well. Uh huh. You've been a very positive doctor and cancer. Yeah. Yeah, how's she doing? Fantastically well. Oh, good. Good to hear. So, 
Yeah, and there are studies out there. You know, if, if you Google something like prayer um, and medical effects of prayer, you'll get a lot of interesting stuff. So scientists, I mean, double-blind studies. So there's some interesting stuff up there. Other comments? Whereas you've seen this kind of, you know, both how these two don't work in your life, and then moments here. Yeah. You remind me of your name? Nancy. Nancy. Well, one of the struggles I have is I meditate in the morning, and it seems like I can't get away from planning a lot. And I don't know if that's when you're trying to control. It's like you're trying to just be empty and trying to just do your breath, and then all the things that you think, great ideas of things you might do that day, mm-hmm. what you might not do things to get done, come in. I don't know if it's because it's in the morning, but it's is that like, being trying to control too much, do you have any advice for yeah. stop those? The people here, Nancy's comment about sitting in the morning and planning mind coming in. And uh, I mean, it comes in in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it really is a creativity <coughs> attack, so to speak, where we have a lot of good ideas. They're very intoxicating because they seem like they'd be really useful. And they might actually be really useful ideas. But we don't want to use our meditation time to think about life, even though it can be useful to put aside time to be reflective. Well, how might I do this relationship better? How might I handle this situation at work better? How might I renovate my home? You know, there's nothing wrong with really creating the space to be reflective, to think about those things in a more calm, uh, you know, quiet way. But in meditation, yeah, it's probably some aspect of control. But not liking that planning mind or thinking that planning mind is bad is just more of the same. So what we have to do, and it's not easy, but we we have to find ways. Sometimes it is useful just to come back to the breath. Because by turning back to the body sitting or the breath happening in the body, we're in a way saying, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to play that game right now. I'm coming back to the present moment, to things as they are. But when it has some real charge to it, when the planning has a charge, it's not, the only way we could do that is with aversion. We don't want to use aversion. So it's better to kind of open to the planning mind, not the content, but just the activity of planning as a mental event in the mind. This is happening. This is this. This is how it is. And to really see, like, how is this? How is this planning? Is it stressful? Is it easeful? You know, how is it coming to be? What are the supporting causes for the planning? Like maybe some subtle fear that I'm not good enough. You know, that's, you know, I want to be seen by people, wanting to be recognized by people. (coughs) So by relaxing with the planning mind, and just letting it play out, so to speak, you'll see slowly with skill, you know, as skill develops, you'll see how it's getting fueled. It's not just happening, it's getting fueled. It's an activity that has present moment causes, otherwise it wouldn't be continuing. And you can see that. You can see how it ends. You know, planning, like how many times we've planned in our lives. I mean, it's gotta be hundreds of thousands of times, right? That it's all gone. All those things we've been planning, they ceased. So planning ceases. 
And if we can be there open, oh, it's like this. And, and without making the plan, without trying to make it go away, see that it ceases on its own, and seeing what are the supporting causes for its cessation. You know, was it seeing that it isn't personal? Was it seeing that it's stressful? You know, what, what did the mind experience or see that allowed it to cease? That's an important thing to wake up to. Because all of that work, see this is, goes back to Jim's comment, all of that work has to be impersonal. If we feel responsible for getting rid of all the bad stuff and cultivating all the good stuff, we've just created another hell realm for ourselves. A Buddhist hell realm, you know, where we're going to make ourselves mindful and kind and simple and, you know, and then it just gets to be a really heavy trip. But what we're trying to do is cultivate a present moment awareness, this awareness of this, an openness to Dhamma the way it is. And in seeing things clearly, naturally, organically, the mind learns how to prevent and abandon what is heavy and painful and to cultivate and maintain what is wholesome and light and buoyant and good. It all happens naturally. So don't, don't be afraid of the planning mind. See if you can make it a natural phenomena that you're interested in. Oh, this is part of this. And just to see it as a fluid, impersonal, dynamic process. Coming, ceasing. And then you can come back to the breath. If it's when it ceases, know that. Then you just, it's almost like the attention, because there's what you were paying attention to is gone. And so in a sense, the awareness just sort of drops back into the experience of the body sitting or the breath happening in the body. Thanks. I think we need to end it here. So let's just take a moment, like all the words. It's nice not to feel dependent on remembering everything. Just trust that some of the content sunk in, resonated, aspire to set the practice in motion in our lives to be a cause for happiness and peace, not just for our own lives, but also for all beings, to live in a way that supports real peace in the world. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.